I said, but I'm a Jew. And he said, wonderful. There's no Jews in Troy, Illinois. They all come to look at you. (laughs) Charles Klotzer fled the Holocaust, only to end up a newspaper reporter in the unlikely location of Troy, Illinois, working for future Senator Paul Simon. We stayed actually a lifelong relationship. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. Charles Klotzer's passion for journalism ultimately led him to begin the St. Louis Journalism Review in 1970. Like many of the media watchdog publications that sprouted up at that time, it was inspired by the mainstream media's coverage of protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention, coverage that seemed determined to cast false light on the protesters. The St. Louis Review, though, differs from many of those organizations in one key way. It's still going strong today. In fact, earlier this week, the publication now titled the Gateway Journalism Review celebrated its 50th anniversary with an event on Zoom featuring Judy Woodruff of the PBS NewsHour. And as for its founder, Charles Klotzer is still going strong today at 95, which is just one remarkable fact in a life that's been full of them. And he joins us today to talk about his passion for this work and the publication he founded. Charles Klotzer, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us on air. We're excited to talk about this, and we're also joined today by Rita Chapo-Sweet. She's an associate professor of communications at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and she made a documentary about the Gateway Journalism Review and its founders more than a decade ago. It's titled, Who's Minding the Media? Charles Klotzer and the St. Louis Journalism Review. So, Rita Chapo-Sweet, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. So, Rita, your film about this journalism review, it's well worth a watch years after its premiere. What made you think that Charles and Rose Klotzer would be a good subject for a film? Um, Well, let me just quickly correct you. Um, I'm a media studies uh, associate professor in the Honors College. But anyway... Um, at at Umsel. <clears throat> but um, I, because I was in media, I um, I became interested in in you know local local media, local productions, and I had the chance at some point. I think it was in the n- mid nineteen nineties to meet with Charles, and um, and I after meeting Charles and Rose, I just fell in love with both of them. Um, they're they're they were such a wonderful couple as a couple, but also I felt that what they were doing was so important um, to essentially uh, have the job of um, really overseeing and keeping the media um, not just honest, but um, maintaining its integrity. Mm. Uh, And so um, I met with them many times, became, I guess, an advisor to the uh, journalism review. And then I decided that this would be a wonderful opportunity uh, to make, it would be, they would be perfect subjects for a documentary. And we began the documentary, I would say, in the early 2000s. Okay. Now, Charles, I want to talk to you about your life, um, which the documentary gets into. And and boy, it just made me curious to know even more. I understand you'd already fought your share of battles by the time you arrived in St. Louis. You were born in Germany. Your family fled the Third Reich for Shanghai. You were there nearly 10 years. How did you finally get to the U.S.? Well, uh, earlier, uh, it was difficult to go to any country because 
most countries didn't want refugees from Europe. Mm -hmm. So it was closed. And Schenker was a unique situation. While it was part of it occupied by the Japanese, there were also British and French enclaves where British and French law were enforced. And the Western powers who ruled Shanghai didn't want the Japanese to be able to say anything about who comes and who goes. Hmm. So they eliminated all visas, all paperwork, and when you go to Shanghai, you just went off the boat, there you were. <laughs> and about nearly between eighteen or 20,000 people took advantage of it and fled from heavily from Germany and Austria and so others and went to Shanghai because it was the only locality they could go to. Hmm. So that's where we arrived in 1939 and stayed there, obviously, through the war. And then in late in 47, we got a visa to the United States and we arrived in the in States. And of course, we arrived in San Francisco and at that time had to decide where to settle. And we thought sort of St. Louis is in the center of the country. If we don't like it, we can get away. But I got stuck. <laughs> so there was any number of places you could go from St. Louis. That was its appeal? Well, yes. They gave me several options. I knew enough about the South that I didn't want to settle there. And that on Pittsburgh and other areas, all we knew about is windows and coal industry and breathing wasn't too good. Hmm. In St. Louis, we didn't hear anything negative. So we went to St. Louis. <laughs> so, so you ended up in St. Louis, and it was quite a stroke of luck because it was here that you got hired for your first journalism job. And what's amazing is the person who hired you was Paul Simon, the, the future senator from Illinois. How did well, that come uh, about? Well, <laughs> um, the job I had, I didn't care for. So I put an ad in the post dispatch looking for a job in journalism. And there was this young fellow from Troy, Illinois, who was wanted. He was 19. And we met downtown in St. Louis. And I told him my views, which were quite liberal. I haven't grown up. I'm still, if not more so. And he said, great, I like your views. I said, but I'm a Jew. And he said, wonderful. We have no Jews in Troy, Illinois. They all come to look at you. <laughs> Indeed, as a matter of fact, they came. And I stayed there till I was drafted. At the same time, Paul was drafted. Mm. And then I left the Troy Tribune. But we stayed actually a lifelong relationship. And he had been a great supporter of various efforts I've had. And, uh, and by the way, it's a whole different story. Senator Paul Simon was an amazing person, unusual. Yeah, he does. He seems like quite a guy. And, and Rita, he's there in your documentary talking about back when he knew Charles Klotzer. That's a pretty good score right there. Absolutely. And, and in this documentary, um, it's really focused on the St. Louis Journalism Review. And this is something, Charles, uh, that you started with your wife, Rose. Now, she died last year at the age of 90, but she is captured there in Rita's documentary. 
would put the kids to bed and go back downstairs and work. Uh, it was 16-hour days, and um, there was always things to do. Uh, fortunately, I never kept a spick-and-span house or felt it was necessary. <laughs> Charles, um, she obviously prioritized the work over cleaning the house, and good for her. How did you and Rose first meet? Well, we both went to Washington University, and in a student event, I asked her uh, for a date, and we met, and after a couple of months, I was quite sure what I wanted to do, and asked her to marry me, and she said, no, I want to go to school. <laughs> I'm not. Well, I'm pretty stubborn. Five years later, I did marry her. It took so, five years. Did, did you come back repeatedly during that time, or you waited five years well, and then asked again? I, I had degrees. I went out to, to graduate school. But that time, one of my teachers and became friends, Merle Kling there, then I said, well, I want to do something else. I'm going to go on. He said, you know, never finish your degree if you don't stay here. Well, I felt I could do it, but he was right. I never. That time you could skip your master's if you go for a PhD. Hmm. Well, I never got it. <laughs> I was too busy with life. And, uh, and as a result of my studies there, uh, I got very much involved with some of the people who were my teachers, Tom Elliott and Mel Kling and so other. But the journalism review, which I started in 1960, no, it was Focus Midwest 62. Journalism was in 1970, which I started, mm -hmm. because there were so many things going on, which I felt the public should know about. Whereas the first issue for example, we had a whole story about the joint operating agencies. Probably many people don't know what it means. It means that the two or more papers within one community have joint operations about everything except for news and mm -hmm. editorial. Mm -hmm. That happened with the Globe and Post. They joined it. And we published in the first issue... And I got a call from the edit, one of the editors at the Post said, you're libeling us, we are separate. All I could tell them is all we did, Pulitzer testify, testify before the U.S. Senate committee about the operation. And we just copied what Pulitzer revealed that time. <laughs> and that joint operate, operating agency was taking advantage of by the Post and Globe. Then ultimately the Globe closed because Newhouse, who was the owner of the Globe, was offered 50% of the profits of the Post. And they were closed. And Newhouse couldn't turn away the offer of 50%. Hmm. So the Globe was closed, or the Globe at that time had more circulation than the Post had. Hmm. That's just one of them. There's so many other things. Uh, that story, by the way, was 
researched and we published in the Post that time. He was a co-editor, Roland Close, who worked on that story. And there were so many other things, like the suburban newspapers mm-hmm. had a rule that no African-American should be featured above the fold on the front page. Wow. And uh, young, young African-Americans who assembled downtown, socializing usually around midnight and so on, which businesses downtown don't like having all these young people around. So the police assigned their own patrol cars to corral the cars which were traveling on towards the highway. Hmm. And they were they locked all the highways except in the suburbs. And they felt once all these cars are in suburbs, they won't come back. That's another story we revealed. And then we confronted the police commissioner about it, he sort of pretended not to know about all those things. I mean, I can give you so many different stories. Yeah, I mean, you guys were really publishing um, some stuff that that was the talk of the town. I mean, this was some groundbreaking journalism here. And and Rita, as you you cover in your your film, um, they were also publishing a strike newspaper for a while um, when the journalists at the mainstream papers went on strike. Yes, I wanted to mention that it's um, uh, it's essentially it, it's typical of the way the journalism review worked and and the way Rose and Charles worked. Um, there was a, a strike. The Post Dispatch went on strike, and um, and basically laid off all their reporters and their editors. And um, and Charles decided, well, you know, we have all these um, uh, you know journalists that are not working. Um, we'll create the St. Louis. I believe it was the St. Louis. Times, uh, Charles, isn't that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for it, for the duration of the strike, um, the Post Dispatch um, reporters and editors were working for Charles. So you you had this situation, which is you know historically huge. I think that this enormous one of the biggest papers because in those days St. Louis Post Dispatch was among the top ten mm-hmm. um, was being published out of a U City basement in the house of this couple. Um, and uh, and and essentially, you know, the the eventually the strike was settled and the reporters went back. Um, but that's something that you know nobody knows about, and yet it's so important for St. Louis history um, to you know recognize people who you know at their own expense and at their own. Um, um, interest or, you know, or communal interest um, were doing an act like this that was, there was no financial benefit in it whatsoever, but it was the right thing to do, and professionally, it was really very important. We're talking today to Rita Chapo-Sweet. She is a professor of media studies at the University of Missouri-St. Louis and has a documentary uh, that came out back in the aughts uh, that's still very relevant today, Who's Minding the Media? Charles Klotzer and the St. Louis Journalism Review. That today is the Gateway Journalism Review. It just celebrated its 50th anniversary. We're here with its founder, Charles Klotzer, as well. And, and Rita, your film gets into the headwinds that media reviews like the St. Louis Journalism Review faced in the 1970s. You interviewed Ed Bishop. Uh, he's the late professor. He worked at Webster University and was editor of this publication for years. And here's what he told you about that time period in the 70s. In the 70s, they hit on hard times. First of all, 
like uh, many of the alternative newspapers of that era, few of them lasted because they were geared mainly to two things, uh, the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement. And when both of those things either uh, cooled off or went away entirely, uh, they had trouble readjusting their editorial focus. But their biggest problem, of course, was financial. And none of them were able to survive financially with the exception of the St. Louis Journalism Review. It's the only one of those journalism reviews founded in the late 60s that still exists. And the only reason it still exists is because Charles underwrote it. He, out of his own pocket, paid for it for 25 years. And that is the late Ed Bishop as featured in Who's Minding the Media. Um, now, Charles, you were in your in your 70s when you reached out to area universities to see if they would consider taking this publication under their wing. I know it first went to Webster. That's where Ed Bishop worked on it. How did it end up at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, which is where it is today? Yeah. Well, in 95, I was, um, I was getting older, but I look around. Who knows what's going to happen? So... Uh, Professor Don Corrigan at Webster made it possible talking the executive there into accepting the review. And from about 95 to 205, like at Bishop, who talked, you heard right now, became a teacher there as well as remaining an editor of the review. And in 2005, Webster said, they're too broke to continue. They didn't subsidize it as much, but whatever it was was too much for them. Mm. So in 2005, it came back to me. But there was so much support in the community, which helped keep it alive till about 2010. Meanwhile, many of reporters and editors who left were let go by the Post and other publications. Many went to SIU Carbondale, including Bill Freivogel, mm -hmm. who became the professor and head of the journalism department there. And I talked to him. He liked the idea. It took quite some effort on his part to have SIU Carbondale to accept the review. And because of him, the review is still alive. And in 2010, finally... They accepted it about 10 years ago. Hmm. And uh, Freiburger, who's now the publisher, frankly, does hell of a job in keeping it going. And it was just because he and others had to look for different ways to keep busy. He was also one of them who went to SAU Carbondale. And so... so that's it's now spent a decade there. Rita, I know you're on the board of advisors there. Um, yes. How do you feel to know that this journalism review is still going strong? As, as you said in your documentary that, that premiered in 2004, at the time, um, so many of these, all the others had gone away, and yet this one was still ticking. It's still ticking today. It, it just published an issue. It is. And um, 
And it's, uh, I mean, I think the people who are still involved with it are doing a wonderful job. I mean, if you just think of the contribution to local and regional uh, journalism education, um, there are students who have been trained by the St. Louis Journalism Review and then are now, you know, more students working with the Gateway Journalism Review. Um, but I think the most important thing is it's almost a bit ironic that um, that things have sort of come full circle. Mm. Um, we there was a time, yes, in the 70s when there were journalism reviews and there were a number of them. But then over the years, there was a, a the media became more and more constricted. They were the, 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 the papers and the other broadcast stations and so on were being held in fewer and fewer hands to the point where it almost, um, you know, destroyed local news uh, at all. And the interesting thing, I think, is with the pandemic um, uh, and Judy Woodruff brought it home to me when we were, had the interview with her this past week. Um, that um, that now journal national journalists and international journalists are basically at home. I mean, a lot of mm. people can't move and they can't travel the way they used to. And so, and, uh, as I said, ironically, now it's going to be the local journalists and the local reporters and and media outlets like KWMU that are going to be able to really. Uh, honestly and clearly present local issues. So uh, I just think it's interesting that, you know, we've come around and hopefully there will be now more democratic um, uh, journalism and it'll breathe new life, hopefully breathe new life into into um, uh, journalist reviews like uh, Gateway Journalism Reviews. I, and I hope you're right about that. And, and Charles, for our last question here, I do want to bring it back to you. Um, this publication is still going strong. That's something to be proud of. What do you see your legacy as you look back on, on all the work that you've done in this field? Well, one of the things I should mention, yes, my wife Rose and I was obviously, in a way, triggering and involved. There were so many others who helped and co-founded. Ted Guest was one of the key people, the late Roy Malone, Peggy Carlin. There were so many others who helped keep it going mm -hmm. and, you know, be involved. And the idea of journalism review a brief note goes back, actually, the original is George Seldes, who in World War I had, in fact, published, and he revealed that tobacco kills people. And he also revealed that the New York Times had an agreement with the tobacco industry to keep their advertising as long as they're not critical of smoking or tobacco. And and so um, there's a long history here of, of these watchdogs doing amazing work. And I know that the St. Louis Journalism Review and the Gateway Journalism Review fits right into that. And, and we are honored to celebrate that with you today. So Charles Klotzer, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having us. We appreciate it. And uh, Rita Chapo-Sweet, thank you so much for joining us today as well. Thank you. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.